Babs, this shit crazy. Jimmy on a beat, boy. Welcome into the trophy room on this Friday. This is a bonus trophies edition of the show. Today we're talking to one of my favorite broadcasters in the world, one of the nicest guys in the sports world and in the, in the business. His name is Noah Eagle. He is currently the play-by-play for Big Ten Saturday tonight. NBC's new primetime college football game. He's been the broadcaster for the Clippers and NBA Summer League and a plethora of other gigs. We talk about his new deals, him calling the biggest comeback in NFL history, how to handle messing up in front of millions of people, and what sneakers we will see him wearing on TV this season. All that and much, much more. Here's my conversation with the one and only Noah Eagle. Okay, Noah, thanks for hanging out. So this podcast that I'm doing is called Bonus Trophies, and what it's about is people's stories, which you obviously are on a new podcast like every single day, so I'm sure you get sick of that. So I'm going to try and ask you questions in ways that you haven't answered a million times. Um, But the first thing that I want to ask is about the – I mean, I I would – say just from reading your career notes from a from a outsider perspective it feels like your career kind of uh took off with the clippers thing where you get turned down for the tv and then you end up getting the offered the radio gig instead correct that is correct yeah okay so i love failure or not, maybe not failure is the right word, but in terms of not failure, but like people telling you no, because I feel like the only way you really make it in life is if you are totally blissfully okay with people telling you no. So when they told you no, we're not going to take you for the TV, and then back end they give you the radio, was it like, okay, these things are completely equal, I'm happy with both? Was there a little bit of, dude, this sucks? What was the mentality when they're like, yeah, know this, but here's this. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a unique circumstance. I was 22 years old, just out of school, and so to be offered any sort of job doing games for an NBA team on a consistent basis, to get to travel with the team, to get to enjoy that part of the lifestyle, it's a no-brainer. You're going to take it. So I, I don't. I think I was when I was going into the interview process for the TV job, I looked at it as this is a great opportunity. I'm playing with house money. To your point, I really had no fear about it being successful or unsuccessful. I just was saying, I'm just going to go and be myself and let the rest take care of itself. And and that's kind of what I did. And so I wasn't sitting there saying, I need this to work out. I was sitting there saying, if this works out, that would be unbelievable. That would be a dream come true in any capacity. And if it doesn't, then I'll have to find what plan B or plan C or plan D looks like after that. But I think that once they offered me the radio job, you know, they, they offered to me on a Friday and they said, take the weekend to decide. I get to decide right now, but I played it cool. You know, Brett, I, I've got a little bit of a trick up my sleeve where I can, I can mask myself. So I said, Oh, of course, of course. I appreciate you giving me the space to really consider it and talk to my family and whatever else other BS I had to kind of say, <laughs> because I knew exactly what my answer was going to be. So I called back on Sunday said i'm good to go i'm I'm locked in i'm all in i'm not dipping the toe i'm jumping in the deep end and, and let's ride to go full russell wilson on it and uh it worked out obviously I had four great years there a wonderful time i learned so much you know i looked at it as basically just furthering my education in this incredible way where i'm learning something new every day 
but I'm getting to call NBA basketball, which was a passion of mine from a very young age. So I get very fortunate. I wouldn't necessarily look at any of it as a failure, but to your point, maybe it wasn't the initial uh, goal or, or vision that was in mind. Is that the biggest no that you've taken? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I would say it's probably not the biggest no I've taken in life when you go up to someone that you want to go on a date with and you get rejected. Like, that's a different type of no. But, uh, yeah, I'd say, look, in my broadcasting career, I've been lucky. The the good thing and what I tell a lot of young broadcasters, when you have that first big domino fall, the rest of them generally seem to follow. And so I got that first big one out of the way right away. And with that – eventually the next one came and the next one came and and it wasn't really me seeking them out as much as them seeking me out. I think that's kind of how this works. So when you first start your career, it's generally you seeking the opportunities out for yourself. And then once you get the big one, it flips. And so I I wouldn't say I've had a a ton of no's and I've been fortunate in that sense. And the goal is that you keep doing good work and keep treating people well so that you don't have a lot of no's. But they're going to come eventually. There's going to come a day where maybe you interview for something or you're up for something or maybe your contract's getting renegotiated and it doesn't get re-upped, whatever it might be. You've got to be ready for that and you've got to be ready to adjust. Okay. So not taking a lot of no's, but what I I do want to ask you about is I've obviously we see you on TV. Do you ever or have you ever felt nerves because obviously everything in this business is reps the more reps you get the more comfortable you get and the more just you feel like you are running the show and it just feels natural but has there ever been a point in your career where you felt nerves at the beginning and reps slowly but surely helped you get through and then how did you deal with the nerves from point a yeah it's an excellent question i wouldn't say that the nerves come from doing the games or getting ready for the games themselves. I I think for whatever reason, and part of that is preparation. Part of it is reps. As you said, you know, when I first started in college, when I was doing my first broadcast, yeah, I probably was a little nervous beforehand, but as I did a number of them and I got the feel and I I had this sense of, you know what, I know what I'm doing. Those nerves kind of went away. The nerves that I think I feel are more so when I'm going into a new situation that I don't know. So I mentioned doing games for a team it's not doing the games that provided me the nerves it's okay how am i going to navigate this is am i going to be able to find my way am i going to meet people i think that's where naturally for everybody it's just a new situation and experience altogether. and when you have that it's very simple i think that it's very natural to just say oh this is going to be interesting i don't know how i'm going to handle this And then you do, and then they go away. They fade away over time. I think it's like anything else. But I've been, either it's in my DNA, but I think more so it's in my preparation and then my belief in myself that I show up. And once I show up and I get the headset on, no, I'm good to go. I I really, and even the day of or any of that, for whatever I've had, and I've been fortunate to have some really big games and and assignments to this point, I never really felt like, I'm nervous for this. I said, no, I belong here. Let me just go do my thing that I've been trained to do. You talked about preparation reps and going into new environments is something that does sometimes strike nerves in a different way. Do you feel like part of the reason the nerves aren't there is because to some extent, like you did grow up preparing for this in terms of being in those environments, like you were at environments 
with your dad. So do you think yeah. the experience of just being in the environment, maybe not necessarily doing the job, but being in the environment in a place where there wasn't a lot of pressure and you were with your dad, so it's like, oh, you're good to be here. Do you think that plays into that piece of not necessarily feeling the nerves of the new environment because you've already been in a lot of these places? It, it played a huge role, huge role. I think that it doesn't matter what direction you take your life. If you're following in the footsteps of someone that you grew up around, helped form the person you are, helped morph you into not just the professional, but as a human being and how you think, how you view, when you're around that all the time, it's natural. You see how the sausage is made. So you've got this extra sense of whether it be confidence or just comfortability around it. So that's that's natural, no doubt. But I think for me, you have to combine that because I was comfortable in the environment, yes. But to get comfortable within the job, the only way to do that is to actually do it. And so I could watch him time and time and time and time and time again i could go to games with him it didn't matter until i actually did it for myself and i know that anybody who's done this knows it you can watch on tv and think to yourself man that just sounds i feel like that'd be simple i feel like that'd be easy to do and i think there are plenty of people that say that and feel that way yeah and then you try it and you go oh that's hard uh -huh. ah, i gotta think of things right 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 away i can't really collect my thoughts and actually just Write them down. No, you've got to be on the on the money, on the moment, all of it. And to actually feel that is when you recognize, okay, this is going to take some work. It's going to take dedication. It's going to take preparation. So do I feel the comfortability factor of being around people and knowing what to do in a production truck or how to handle myself in a meeting, a production meeting? I think that's maybe where I had just a natural, innate feel for it. But the game itself, no, that has to come from within. What has been a moment in your career, whether it's your mind blanked during um, a call or uh, because that happened to me the other day and I'm, I'm nowhere near the level that you are. And I'm just like, how do you deal with that? Oh, or whether it's, it's saying the wrong thing, like how do you a tell me the story and B tell me how you just Ted lasso it and be a goldfish and just keep on moving. No doubt. I, I love the reference. One, for sure, I didn't grow a mustache. I would have loved to, but I don't know <laughs> if I have the ability to get the lasso-level stash. So I'm going to have to stick with the, the baby face for at least a, a little while longer. But the one that sticks out to me, my first year with the Clippers, it wasn't a I forgot or I couldn't think of what to say. I think you'd have to go back to college for me when I was starting out and – Maybe in the moment you just perform for your words, you stumble your way through something and the best way to do it. And the advice my dad always gave me was, okay, just keep going. <laughs> the only person that knows most of the time that you messed up is yourself. And especially when you listen to it back and you go, oh, wow, that really wasn't as bad as I made it out to be in my head. And I think I learned that lesson pretty quickly in college. And it's the best lesson I could have gotten as I then made my way into my professional career as well. But the one that sticks out in terms of a mistake or, or something that still eats away, my first year with the Clippers, the team was in Boston. It was the last game before All-Star break. And look, right before All-Star break, those games are grind games because you've been just working constantly from the beginning of the season without a break. And at most, you probably had two days in between games, and that happens really once, maybe a month if you're lucky, probably more like five or six weeks. So 
usually you've got games every other day or games back to back days. And so at that point, you're just, you're, you're exhausted, no doubt. And the Clippers are notorious for playing more games than anybody before the All Star break because they don't have their own arena and they get last dibs in their arena. So the last two years, for example, Brett, the Clippers have played 61 games before the All Star break, which is an NBA record. Holy cow. In back to back years. Back to back years. That's so nuts. you're exhausted. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. Now, the back end after the All-Star break is great for them because they get spaced out games, they get extra rest, and if you look, they finish the season 11-5 and because they're well-rested. But it's just an interesting little nugget that people don't think about and I think a scheduling thing that the average fan isn't concerned with because you're just watching the games. And nor would I. I wouldn't be concerned with it. I'd just be saying, hey, well, you get paid a lot of money to go and play the game. But these guys are exhausted and as a result the broadcasters are exhausted and in boston if you ever call a game there it's among the worst locations in the league you get put behind the basket in the corner whoa so the basket is literally blocking your view of the opposite corner if someone shoots a three you've got to wait there's a broadcaster that many years ago said and a three from the corner is good from a player who shall be named later because he couldn't see who it was and this was a classic game. It was when the Celtics had Kemba Walker the first year he was there when they were really good. And they still had Gordon Hayward. And they had Jason Tatum becoming a superstar. And they had Jalen Brown becoming a superstar. And they had Al Horford. And like they were good. They were, I think, one of the top teams in the East. The Clippers were one of the top teams in the West. First year, Kawhi and Paul George. They're playing. You've got Marcus Morris, who had just been traded to the Clippers. That was a huge deal at the deadline. Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell were the two top six men in, in the league. You know, both teams were really good. And it went down to the wire, and the Clippers were down three towards the end of regulation. And Marcus Morris hit a three to tie the game. And it was a scramble play where the Clippers missed like two, and it got batted out to him, and he, and he hit it. And I think I was so discombobulated from all those factors I mentioned that I called him Marcus Smart instead of Marcus Morris. Oh. And I and I couldn't, you know, in the moment, it's such a chaotic sequence, such a big shot. You can't really correct yourself and just move on. And so I had to just kind of breeze through it and act like I almost didn't do it. But fortunately, the game went on, then went to overtime, it then went to double overtime, last game before the All-Star break. So everyone is already ready to just get on to their break, and now you're playing two overtimes. But the Celtics ended up winning that game at TD Garden and split the season series. The first game between those two that year went to OT, and the Clippers won it. So that was that was one of those where it just every time those teams played when I was there in my four years, it was a classic game for whatever reason. They matched up so well. But that one will stick with me probably forever. Yeah, and that's so tough. Like, because if you spend time discussing the fact that you made a mistake, a you're missing the game, and b it just makes you look like there's no, there's really no way to go and fix it. Like, there's not. No, the only way to fix it is no. All right, we've got more basketball to play to be played. Let's nail the rest of this. Let me just crush it the rest of the way, and then make sure I don't do this ever again. And TV is such a weird thing because you. It's, it's all about time. It's all about doing more with less. And so, like the other day I was working a game and the guy who tossed to me, he said my name wrong. And my fiance was watching. She's like, well, why didn't someone go back and correct him? And I'm like, you just, you don't, 
you a don't want to call attention to the fact that you made a mistake and b you don't have the time and so it's this weird thing where at every at most people's jobs if you mess something up a lot of times you have the time to go and fix it but tv and radio are not that way because especially in live sports it is that fast and you don't have the time 100 percent. and so the best way to do it is just to keep chugging you know i think everybody knows if you've watched winning time and even if you haven't this is a pretty common i guess example where in season one of winning time john c Riley, who plays jerry bus talks about how ducks float above the surface to everybody they just glide on water but if you look underneath the water they are paddling harder than anybody in the water just to stay above and stay afloat and that's kind of like any broadcast production everybody's working so hard so that it seems and looks and feels and sounds seamless to everybody else on the surface Mm -hmm. but if they saw what it went into it behind the scenes and then from the broadcaster's perspective the preparation all of it you say oh i I didn't realize such an undertaking was required to make such good broadcasts, but that's what it is at the end of the day. And that's what we love to do at the end of the day as well, Brett. I, I love the grind that's required to go out and do well at the job. I feel like it's an enjoyable experience. I learn more. I get to, I get to do things and research things that I like. That's, that's fun for me. And then find different funny or entertaining anecdotes that I can add in. It's, it's an enjoyable experience, but you've got to love it if you're going to do it. Okay, I want to pick up there. You talked about loving it, and I have always been curious with you. I mean, you definitely show that you love it when we watch you on TV, but also there is some reality to the f- idea that most people hate their jobs. Most people who go out and do what they do, and granted, not everybody works in sports, but you do wonder sometimes if there ever gets a point for for Joe Buck or Al Michaels or your dad where it's like, dude, you do this every day. Does it ever become a job? And I am curious with you, like, do you feel like every day you still go and have fun or is it like, no, it is a grind? Well, it's, it's a combo for sure. But at the end of the day, you still love it. You know, the, the week leading up to a football game where you're doing all the work, that's a grind. Don't get me wrong. That's hours and hours and hours that you're pouring into making sure that you've got every piece of information you might need down on your sheet, making sure that you're watching every bit of video or listening to every podcast that you can just to get yourself prepared for one game. That's a grind. And there are moments where you might not feel like doing it. But by the time you get there, it's all worth it. It's all like the, the game itself is so enjoyable. And I still do feel like the prep part, most of it is enjoyable as well. I get to learn more about these world-class athletes that, okay, how did you get to this point? What type of family background did you have? How did that impact who you are as a person and as a player? I find that stuff fascinating. And, you know, you bring up my dad. The reason I got into this is because I saw him wake up every day excited to do his work, excited to then go do the game. And that's what it's all about. So when I saw he was so passionate about it, I was like, all right, let me at least try it and see if I'm as passionate and sure enough, I said, oh, I, I get it. This is an intoxicating feeling. I, I got to continue to chase the same thing. Okay, last serious question before I have some fun ones that I'm just really Already. interested in your takes on. Okay, so the reason this is called bonus trophies is because I'm a firm believer that no matter what you want to do, no matter who you are, no matter how hard you work, you need people to give you breaks 
seemingly with no logical reasoning to it at all. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, where it's like, there's really no reason. You kind of mentioned it with the Clippers, where ex-supervisor or ex-boss, like, I don't think Tom Brady could have been what he was without Bill Belichick. Who is the, the person who gave you that bonus trophy, who gave you that extra look, who has been, and, and maybe it's your dad, maybe it's someone at the Clippers, but who's someone who had no reason taking a chance on you and they said, you know what, I see something and that combination has helped rocket ship you to where you are. Yeah, you see, the thing is, and the fun part about this business is that could be so many people. Totally. Because I've, I've gotten a chance to do so many great things. You know, I think it starts with... Sure, you can say parents and the fact that both of them just put a belief in me. I think that's important for any parent with any child. You know, my dad tells the great story about when he was a kid and, and he just went up to his dad when he was seven and said that he wanted to be a sportscaster. And his dad and then eventually his mom, they both said, okay, well, then that's what you're going to do. And so he believed it forever. And when you have that belief, then you're willing to work a little harder, willing to do the extra things because you know it's going to pay off in the end. And I think that's what he did. And so he grinded and, and obviously it's worked out for him very well. So the fact that they did the same thing for me was kind of that first step. After that, I've got, I mean, I've got a list. I'd say <laughs> the first person, Paul Benedict at the NBA, allowed me to come and, and work some summer league stuff. And was they were very impressed. And they, they basically then were in my corner from that point on. But it also was tape that I had to then show to other people. Same year, a couple people at, at Fox, including uh, Bardia Sharash, had really given me the opportunity to work for the junior NBA. And that was a massive bu- uh, boost for me to, to do sideline reporting on a, an actual network. And I was a kid and I, was, I wasn't experienced and they took a major chance. That's, that's huge for something they were trying to prove to the NBA they could do. And then... You know, of course, the Clippers thing was big. But even just before that, Sirius XM, I had a couple people there that reached out to me. And eventually, they gave me a chance to do a game. And so, or to not do a game, to do a show on a weekly basis my senior year of college. And that was huge to have uh, multiple people put their arms around me and and just believe in me and and give me more confidence At, at Syracuse to have professors who got me opportunities, Matt Park and Olivia Stomsky. And Olivia was the one who eventually recommended me as one of the names for the Clipper job. And then at that point, it's Gillian Zucker who really took the chance on me and said, we're going to hire a kid who has no experience, but we believe in. And then from that point on, it just, it goes on and on and on. So, so you see where each job, there's someone else who had to take a risk. And then you, the, the goal is to eventually get to a point where, you're no longer a risk, but I'm not at that point yet. I'm still young in my career, and every time someone's giving me a job, especially the bigger it is, that's a, a major risk on their part, and I have nothing but appreciation and gratitude for their willingness to do it. Who's taught you the most? I guess maybe, maybe that might be too tough a question to ask, but name some people who have, who have taught you the most. I think my dad's going to be at the top of the list. You know, He's always there. He's always there for me. I know that. And the best thing, the best part about all of it is he doesn't force it. He never has forced. He never forced me into this. He let me choose it on my own. He never forced me to go to Syracuse. He let me choose it on my own. And then when I started, he never 
he was never pushing. He was never going out of his way. If he heard something and he felt like I needed to to know it, it would come over. It would come out over time, and and he would do it in the right way. And if I ask him anything, he's always there to listen and, and to to answer. And it's not just me. He does that with everybody. You know, he does that with everybody, and I think that's what makes him extra special. So he's at the top of the list. I had so many great professors and and mentors at Syracuse and other broadcasters. So again, I think if I if I really listed everybody, we'd be here all day. That's fair. And that's and that's the great thing about this business is that I really do feel like there are a lot of people that are willing to pay it forward and willing to to handle themselves the right way, you know, to to go out there and make sure that the younger and next generation is taken care of. And I find that imperative. I think that you've got to go and do it. And so whether it's executives or whether it's fellow broadcasters or whether it's professors, I've had so many over the course of now my several years in this business that I just owe a debt of gratitude. Okay. All right. So we're just going to rip through here. We got a couple minutes left and I have some questions that I've just been dying to know. First one, did you read a dictionary and a thesaurus growing up or were you just born with a 35-year-old's mind? Like the speaking so eloquently with such fat words, I'm just like, okay, maybe next time I talk to Noah, I need to bring my thesaurus. <laughs> it's an excellent question. The funny thing is my dad did read the dictionary. No. When he I swear he read it cover to cover. And so I've never done that. I... If maybe one day it'll come a day where I feel like I need to shore up even further, I think I'm okay right now. The one thing he did do when my sister and I were younger was every time that we said like or um, he made us stop, start the sentence over, and eliminate it. That's So that we didn't do it. And he always said it's better to pause than to use those consistently. Now, I do think that there's a world where there's a happy medium there where you don't have to never say it. But it is better when you don't say it as as much as you possibly can. And living in L.A. for four years, I definitely heard a lot of (laughs) likes and a lot of ums. And so it was difficult to try to stray away and stay in my own lane, as LeVar Ball would have liked to tell me. But I felt (laughs) like I did it as well as I could. And the funniest one, you just said 35, the, the funniest article that I ever had was when I first got the Clipper job, Yovan Buha was writing still for the Clippers on the Athletic. He's now with the Lakers beat on the Athletic, but a friend of mine, and he wrote an article kind of introducing me to the Clipper world and Clipper nation, and the title of it was, He's 22 Going on 52, <laughs> and it was pretty accurate. Has it? Have, do you feel like you've always just kind of like been this way? And like even in high school, people are like, oh, Noah, da, 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 whatever. Or is it like, I don't know. I feel like with your dad being as incredible as he is, I almost feel like you could have just been like this the whole time and this is just normal for you. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. I There's the song Black Beatles by Ray Shremit. Yep. And of course, they provide just endless knowledge in that song and one of them is get you somebody who can do both i always felt like i was somebody who could do both i could turn it on and and adapt to my environment as best i could so yeah I, i was i was generally good with adults at a young age and i think that was instilled in me and my dad was the same way when he was young he was very independent and when he was six or seven years old, he would go on stage. My, my grandpa was a comedian. My grandma was a singer. He would go and open for them as a six-year-old. 
and he was just natural with it. He could do it. And then all the adults would want to talk to him and he could hold conversations with them at six. So I, I think there is some form of a, an innate ability, but at the same time, it was also, I owe a lot of, of credit to him and my mom for how they helped raise me and my sister and, and making sure that we were comfortable in all those settings. So I think it's a combination, but more so the second than the first. I think the most surprising thing I've ever seen on television was your dad quoting Cardi B at March Madness. <laughs> Just because like there, I feel like the spectrum of who broadcasters are is so wide. You have some people that are just absolute stat junkies and they're very yes sir no ma'am shake your hand like eyes just beeline all the time and then you also have the just crazy fun a little bit laxed and it's so weird to me because you and your dad give off the persona because you're so intelligent and well-spoken that you're just stat junkies with like almost a little bit of a removed personality. However, that's not even kind of the case because like you mentioned, you guys just do both. Like you're some, you're some of the funniest people that I think exist in broadcasting. So I've always found that fun. Um, two more questions. I got to ask this cause I'm a sneakerhead. I've seen you in a couple things. I see you always wearing threes. I've seen a couple Chuck Taylors. Are you always a sneakers with a suit kind of guy? And what are like the top sneakers that you are into right now? So I appreciate it on uh, first the, the comment on the personality side. But second, I, I more so appreciate that you recognize the shoe game. You know, the heat on the feet is important to me. Absolutely. I was definitely sneakers with suits and everything when I was in L.A. And the last couple of years, when I first got there, I never did. You know, when I was growing up, I never did. My dad never did it. And so it was a foreign concept being from the Northeast because that's not generally what you would see. So when I first got there, I was also trying to make sure I was buttoned up and I, I played the part and all that. And then once I recognized that it was okay, I went I went all in. Ah. And so I, I had everything that I needed. I had all, all the J's that I could come up with, whether it be threes, fours, ones, Maybe here and there you would have an 11s or a 12s nearby, but I'm really ones, threes, and fours. I'd say fours are my favorite shoe of all time, and so I try to I try to vary it up. I think I have three or four colorways on those, and then you know you mentioned the Chucks. I'm definitely into those right now. I've got a bunch of them. I like New Balances. I like Adidas. I like variety in my life. I think that's the most important. And then I try to go and, and find brands that most people don't know. And those are generally the ones that get the most compliments. When I find I have a couple brands, and I'm not even going to say them because I can't. Okay. I got to a little bit here, Brett. I just I don't want them to be mainstream. But I will say this: as I make this move to the new job this year at NBC, I'm going to move back at least to start to the traditional shoe. Now Whoa. it won't be it won't be your boring traditional shoe, but it's at least going to be something that's not a sneaker. So. I'll find something in between. Okay, well, we look forward. I look forward to seeing what it is. You got to send me pics whenever you decide. Um, that's cool that you say 11s and 12s because I feel like uh, I feel like sneakerhead culture used to be like kind of uh, I don't know what the word is, but not as big and as mainstream it is. And now everybody's moms, dads, everybody's wearing the Jordan One lows, whatever. But if you're wearing like an 11 or a 12, then you're you're clearly a legitimate sneakerhead. So I applaud you for that. I think those are sweet. I actually wore cool gray 11s to work today. So 
I love it. Oh, I love it. Those that's a classic. You can wear those with just about everything. Agreed. Like I've worn them with a suit on TV before. So like you can you can do it. You just got to do it right. I agree. So I just got my buddy just gave me a pair of Concord 11s as a gift, oh. which was very very nice of them. Great. And I'm excited. For, I'm trying to find the right time to break them out because you know you can't just break those out on a on a random Wednesday. So I got to find the right time. Hey, maybe when you get the Syracuse game on that Big Ten Saturday night, you know, maybe that may be the time to break out the Concord just just to flex the alma mater a little bit. Could be. I mean, I got some orange, but I don't think I can go homer with it. I, I think that's against my morals. Yes, orange is a, orange is loud. I that would be hard enough for me going to Syracuse alone. Is I can't wear orange, so that much orange would blow my brains out. You say it now, but then you get there, you get intoxicated, <laughs> you get welcomed. With a bear hug of orange. Okay, the last question, and I promise I'll let you get out of here, but I just, I got to know, 30 seconds, walk me through your thought process. You've called the biggest comeback in NFL history, which was the Vikings and the Colts. We've watched it back on quarterback on that NFL docuseries. Be realistic, though. When you're doing that, you've worked a lot of these games, and you're like, okay, this thing this thing is over. I got to find ways to fill time for the next half. Walk me through the thought process of this game's over. How am I going to do an entire half of football? So what's crazy is I was just I just rewatched the game yesterday for the first time. It was the first time I watched it front to back, and just doing some film study, if you will, a broadcast totally. film study before I get ready for this season. And I didn't think the game was over. I know it sounds crazy, and I think every everybody I've talked to thinks I'm lying. Was it just the vibe in the arena? No, no. What happened was, because I did the Clippers games, the Clippers had had, the last several years, some of the craziest comebacks I had ever seen in my life. They came back from 35 points down on the road and beat the Wizards, which they had absolutely no right winning that game, and they found a way. They came back 25 down in Game 6 against Utah to advance to the conference finals. They came back from 25 down against Joel Embiid and the Sixers without Kawhi and Paul George. They did the same against Jokic and the Nuggets without Kawhi and Paul George. It just never made sense. And what it taught me, they had, I think it was five 20-point comebacks two years ago, which set an NBA record. What it taught me was never give up on a game. And so I, I would say I thought it was unlikely, but I didn't think the game was over. And the other reason I say that was two weeks prior the last game that Indianapolis had played in, they gave up 30-something points. I think it was 33 or 34 points in the fourth quarter alone to the Dallas Cowboys. Cowboys, yeah. And they lost that game 53-19 or something like that. And so you knew that they could give up points in a hurry, one. You also knew that Minnesota could put up points in a hurry because they'd been doing it all year. And Kirk Cousins had had a great year. And obviously Justin Jefferson was dominating the NFL. So there was a part of me that said, all right, there's a chance here. And Nate Burleson, who I did the game with, Nate and I at halftime said, if they score X amount of points within this amount of time in the third quarter, they're back in the game. And we basically said, if they score two touchdowns by the four-minute mark of the third quarter, they're back in the game. Well, they didn't score their first touchdown until the four-minute mark of the third quarter. That's how crazy this comeback was. And as I was watching it yesterday, I'm like, why did I think that they were still in this game? How did I actually believe that? But to your point, Nate and I did talk at halftime. Hey, 
what do we want to talk about if it gets even further out of hand or if they don't make any sort of push here? What storylines have we not gotten to yet that we can get into? And we had a plan in place. I think maybe we were looking at earlier flights. I don't know. But I do know this. <laughs> the fact that I didn't give up on that game and that I didn't give up on some of those Clipper games, I would tell you that it was the greatest lesson that I ever could have gotten so that moving forward, just in the back of my mind, I always have this feeling of, okay, Anything can happen. That's why we love sports. That's why we tune in. And that's why we, we kill ourselves rooting for our teams. Because we know at any point, on any season, on any day, something spectacular could happen. And we want to be there to witness it. Amen to that. I don't think I could... I don't think I could end this interview any way better than that. So thank you so much, Noah, for hanging out. I super appreciate it. And I look forward to talking soon. Brett, you're the man. Appreciate you having me on. Excited to see you continue to dominate on the air as well. And hopefully wearing an array of kicks that I'm going to be really excited now to, to pay attention, extra special attention to. Well, I'll, I will de- make sure to hopefully keep up with you and someday maybe, maybe, maybe keep up with Nate Burleson if I am someday no half as lucky to do 10% no of what he does. But I don't, I don't know no. that anyone will ever top Nate Burleson. He's got he's got a walk-in closet that has a walk-in closet all of shoes. The inception of sneakerheads. <laughs> yeah, shoeception for sure. All right, well, thanks, Noah.